it's less likely that God will come to you in a pillar of fire or a burning bush or an angel will present to you. It's more likely that you will see God working through your life in such a way that when you look back and you see all the puzzle pieces get fit together, you go, God had to be in control. Welcome to Uncaged Bible Study. We hope our name gives it away as we are looking to unleash God's word in its entirety from beginning to end and unlock the power within the pages of scripture. We aim to restore the authority of God's word in a world that has lost its understanding of doctrinal truths, as well as shed a light on how from the first page to the last page, the Bible is pointing us towards Messiah, our Savior, Jesus. So we hope you enjoy the Bible study today. And if you did, follow us or share the podcast to help us spread the word around the globe. And if you leave us a five-star review, that's a great way to let us know that you say amen and are impacted by what you've heard. So thank you for joining us on this journey. And in the words of Charles Spurgeon, the Bible is like a caged lion. It does not need to be defended. It simply needs to be let out of its cage. Let's unlock the cage together. Before we get into the book of Esther, I do want to remind you of something that happened about 600 years prior to what we're reading, because it's important and it'll come into play today. In 1 Samuel 15, what we saw was Saul, King Saul, had an order by God as he was going up against to fight against the Amalekites. And his order was to destroy all of the Amalekites, not to leave any living, not to take any of the animals. He had an order from God. It seemed really harsh. But you're going to see why tonight. Now, King Saul failed to follow through on the orders that God had given him. He didn't destroy all of the Amalekites. In fact, he took some of the animals to give to do sacrifices. And in particular, he left King Agag alive. And when Samuel found out about this, he first he yelled at Saul, and then he had, had King Agag brought to him, and he took a sword and hacked Agag into pieces because he was so upset and he wanted to set an example to Saul. That was the moment that God turned his back on Saul and told Samuel to go anoint David as the next king of Israel. Now, Saul got to reign for a little while longer, but... David had been anointed as the next king of Israel, knowing that Saul's line was done reigning Israel. Now, I want to remind you of that story because it's now 600 years later, about. And what you're going to see is how God sees history. Now, sometimes things don't make sense. Sometimes the things God asks his people to do seem cruel, but that's because we don't have God's perspective. God's eternal perspective is so much bigger and so much grander. He can see the end from the beginning, and you might be able to understand the purpose he has for the things he asks his people to do that sometimes don't make sense. And you'll see how the failure of Saul comes into play in the book of Esther, because this book wouldn't even need to be written if those events didn't happen, if Saul just did what God asked him. So picking up here in Esther Chapter 1, verse 1 says, It came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, 
This was the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of the kingdom, which was in Shushan, the citadel, that in the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all his officials and servants. The powers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes and the provinces bring before him. He showed them the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. And when those days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Shushan, the citadel, from great to small in the court of the garden of the king's palace. <coughs> so the book opens up with Xerxes, who happens to be the wealthiest king in the history of the Persian kingdom, showing off his wealth. He has a six-month party where he's just showing off how extravagant and wealthy he is. And at the end of those six months, he decides to throw a feast for another week <laughs> because that's, he's just showing off how wealthy he is. And that's the setting of what's going on. In the next couple of verses, you actually get to see some of the description of the wealth that he had and the things that he had in there. You see a lot of marble and alabaster and turquoise and gold and all kinds of different stuff. And we pick up in verse 9, Queen Vashti, so the king's wife, also made a feast for the women in the royal palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbanabigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing a, a royal crown, in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials. For she was beautiful to behold, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command brought by his eunuchs. Therefore, the king was furious and his anger burned within him. So here's what goes down. They've been having a six-month party about how great and wealthy Xerxes is. Then they have a seven-day feast in which they're all getting hammered and acting like idiots. And by the end of it, Xerxes and his buddies are plastered, and there maybe the, there's even some tradition that states they might have been arguing over which country has the most beautiful women, and Xerxes says, I'll end that right now. I'll call Queen Vashti before, and you can see how beautiful my wife is, because not only do I have lots of wealth and material wealth, but I also have the most beautiful woman in the land. Now, as is the case today, back then, it was not culturally appropriate to show your face in front of the men. And so Vashti gets this order and she says, no, I'm not doing that. But he's the king and he seems like kind of spoiled. And he says, no, what I say goes, and he's furious. So then in his anger, he starts asking for advice about what to do because no one denies the king what he wants. And so he asks his, uh, his chief advisor, Memucan, what to do about Queen Vashti. And he responds and says, <clears throat> uh, before the king and the princes, Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will become known to all women, so they will despise their husbands in their eyes, when they report, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in before him, but she did not come. This very day, the noble ladies of Persia and Media will say to all the king's officials, 
that they have heard of the behavior of the queen, thus where will the excessive contempt and wrath. If it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it will not be altered, that Vashti shall come no more before the king, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. When the king's decree, uh, which he will make, is proclaimed throughout all his empire, for it is great, all wives will honor their husbands, both great and small. So here's what's really going on. If the king ordered someone into his presence, it's illegal to say no. You can, it can cause death. Now, he doesn't kill Vashti. He just cuts her off from being queen. She goes and lives off by herself. She's no longer allowed in his presence. But all of the people around the king are saying, oh, no. If a woman is willing to refuse the king, we're no, we don't have the authority of the king. Women all across the land will now start disrespecting their husbands. So they give King Artaxerxes, or they give King Xerxes uh, advice that benefits them as well. And so they say, kick her out. Write a law, kick her out. She's not allowed to be in there. And then have a new queen. Now in between... Uh, which Xerxes goes along, along with. He cuts off Vashti. He's angry and upset. She's no longer allowed in his presence. They send out letters to the whole kingdom, and now he doesn't have a queen. There's no wife. Now, between chapters 1 and 2 is a famous battle, the Battle of Thermopolis. It's actually the battle that the movie 300 was based off of when a small band of Spartans and a few Greeks went up against the Persian army with an incredibly overwhelming force, that small band of Greeks took out a whole lot of Persians before they won the battle. So while the Persians and Xerxes were successful in the battle in that they won, the truth is they got beat pretty horribly by a really small army, and that did not sit well with the king. And uh, he's, in, he's feeling the emotions of that on top of the fact that Vashti just did what she did. So that's where we pick up in chapter two. After these things, when the wrath of the king, Ahasuerus subsided, he remembered Vashti, what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's servants who attended him said, let the beautiful young virgins be brought for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan the citadel into the women's quarters under the custody of Hegai the king's eunuch, custodian of the women, and let beauty preparations be given them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This thing pleased the king, and he did so. So someone came up with this wonderful idea to help the king. Let's get a ton of the most beautiful women in the entire kingdom of Persia, which stretches over a huge portion of the entire Middle East and into parts of Europe and into parts of you know Eastern Europe. All the most beautiful women from the whole kingdom. And let's bring them, uh, have a beauty contest before the king. And he can choose his favorite of the lot and that she becomes queen and everybody else becomes his concubine. So he gets all the most beautiful women in the land. And the king says, that sounds good. All right, let's do that. So that's what they do. And Mordecai, uh, verse 7, Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther. Hadassah is her Hebrew name. Esther is the name she uses in Persia. His uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother, 
The young woman was lovely and beautiful. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So Mordecai is Esther's cousin, but he takes her in as her daughter because she has no family left. And he decides, he hears about what's going on, and he says, you should enter the contest. Because Esther is apparently incredibly beautiful. And now this girl who he's taken on as his, it's his cousin, but who he's taken on as his daughter, he's thinking, what better place than the palace for you? Uh, you'll be better protected than I can give you. You'll have more at your behest than I could ever give you. So I think you should enter the contest. And he has enough faith in her that she would win. So uh, picking up in verse 12, <clears throat> each young woman's turn came in to King Ahasuerus after she had completed 12 months preparation according to the regulations of the women. For thus were the days of their preparation. Uh, apportioned six months with oil and myrrh and six months with perfume and preparations for beautifying women. So they spent a year getting beauty prepped, which is how it feels every time I need to go walk out the door with a wife. I feel like it takes a year. But this is actually a year getting themselves prepped to look as good as they can before King Xerxes. And it says, thus prepared, each young woman went to the king, and she was given whatever uh, she desired to take with her from the women's quarters to the king's palace. So they had all of the king's goods and something to bring before the king with them and to look as good as they can. They were able to take something from the treasury of the king. Now, most of the women choose to pick something that they desire. Esther chooses to listen to the chief eunuch and what he advises her to take. So she's also wise and beautiful. Pick up in verse 16. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, <clears throat> which is the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king made a great feast, the Feast of Esther, for all his officials and servants, and he proclaimed a holiday in the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of a king. So now all this stuff has just sort of happened. This is really the first section of the book of Esther. It's the setting. It's setting up all of the things that go into place that make the rest of the book capable of happening. It's just God working behind the scenes. Now throughout this entire book, you actually won't see the name of God. You'll see no capital L-O-R-D. God's name is not mentioned in this book. Where you see God is working in the background as he has authority over time and God's providence works throughout history. It's actually more like you would see God working today. It's, not, it's less likely that God will come to you in a pillar of fire or a burning bush or an angel will present to you it's more likely that you will see God working through your life in such a way that when you look back and you see all the puzzle pieces get fit together, you go, God had to be in control because things that didn't make sense all of a sudden fit together. And what has happened is Vashti is no longer queen. The king needed a new queen. Mordecai thought, you're perfect for this. I believe you'd win this contest, and she did. And now Esther is the new queen. And right after that, 
there happens to be a plot unfolded to try to kill King Xerxes. Mordecai hears about it, and he tells Esther. And Esther is able to give that information to the king because of the position she's in now. And Xerxes' life is saved, and then it's recorded in history of the Persians that Mordecai was the one who stopped the coup. However, because Esther was the one who told King Xerxes, he's unaware of Mordecai's involvement in preventing the coup and saving his life so far. So we pick up in uh, chapter 3. It says, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above the princes who were with him. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman, for so the king commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. This is central to this entire story. And this is what connects us to 600 years earlier. Saul was supposed to destroy all of the Amalekites, including King Agag and his descendants. Well, Samuel hacked Agag into pieces, but apparently Saul left some of King Agag's descendants still alive. And it turns out, 600 years later, Haman is put as the chief officer right under King Xerxes, and he happens to be an Agagite, because he's a descendant of King Agag. And now we see what God was trying to prevent. In chapters 3 through 5, we get the tension in the story. So Agag is now right, the right-hand man of the king, but Mordecai refuses to bow to him, because Mordecai will only bow to God. Well, Haman does not like this. He earned his position in the kingdom, and maybe he knows the history of Agag and the Israelites, and he's particularly hateful against the Jews, and uh, he really wants to take out his prejudice on the Jews, and, and Mordecai is the one whom he puts most of his attention to, and the one he hates the most, because Mordecai refuses to show him respect. Verse 8, then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people, meaning the Jews, scattered and dispersed among all uh, among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other peoples, and they did not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money and the people are given to you to do it as, seem good, as seems good to you. So Agag, or Haman, the Agagite, says to the king, the Jews, he hates them. And he comes up with a plan. He tells the king, because they don't follow Persian culture, because they have their own God in the way that they don't, they're not following the rules of the Persians. So what you should do is let me destroy them throughout every single one. He wants to kill a million people. 
all Jews. He wants to get rid of every single one. And then he says, once we plunder all of their goods, I'll give you 10,000 talents of silver. So not only do you get rid of a problem in your kingdom, you also get rich off of it. Uh, and the king says, well, it seems like you're looking out for me. So here's my authority. You can sign the letters here with my signet ring. And you can go ahead and do it. Now it's been put into law. Problem is, in Persian law, unlike Babylonian law, the previous captors of the Israelites, is that the Babylonian kings could choose whatever they wanted to do on a whim. Once something was put into law in Persia, even the king was held to that law. He couldn't reverse his own law. So now it's been put into place that on a certain day is execution day for the Jews. And so the letters have been sent out. You pick up in verse 13. The letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, kill, and annihilate the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, and one day, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions, a copy of the document was to be issued as law in every province being published to all the people that they should be ready for that day. So the letters have been sent out. The day of execution is on its way. Now Mordecai hears about this in chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned... All that had happened, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. And he ends up being so distraught that he makes it all the way to the king's gate, but he can't go in because you're not allowed to wear sackcloth or be depressed in front of the king. So we pick up in verse 13. Mordecai told them to Esther. Basically, he's telling Esther the news of the letters that have been sent out to kill all of the Jews. Well, this is important because Mordecai and Esther are Jews. The queen is a Jew. And Mordecai told them to answer, Esther, do not think in your heart that you will escape the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise from the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish, yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So Mordecai basically says, God's got this under control. Um, if you don't do something, God will still find a way to rescue the Jews. He believes that. But he's saying to Esther, perhaps though, you were put into this position. All of the stuff that has just happened recently with Queen Vashti and this year-long beauty prep and you being picked among everybody, among all of the all of the girls in all of the kingdom, you were chosen by the king to be queen. Maybe that's not a coincidence. Maybe that's God saying you were put here for exactly this purpose, to save the Jews. You were made for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise, and I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Or if I die, I die. So Mordecai went his way, and according to all that Esther commanded him. So for three days and three nights, the Jews are fasting because they know the word has come out for them to be killed. And that's how they're acting. And now they're just fasting for hope, that instead of death, they get life. And they do it for three days and three nights. That should sound familiar. Now, Esther's 
attitude is basically, I'm a Jew, so if this edict goes through, I die. So I might as well go and attempt to say something to the king, because even though going to the king unannounced could get you killed, she might not die. So she's got a 50-50 chance if she approaches the king. She's got a 100% chance of dying if she, doesn't, if she does nothing. That's her attitude. She says, if I die, I die. So we pick up in verse 2 of chapter 5. So it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that she found favor in his sight, and the king held out, his, uh, held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. And the king said to her, What do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half of the kingdom. So Esther answered, If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to the banquet I have prepared for him. So Esther, knowing she could die going into the presence of the king without being announced, um, cho chooses to do it. Now the reason the king was sealed up and you weren't allowed into his presence uninvited or unannounced is two reasons. One, it, scarcity of intermingling creates an air of sort of mythicism or respect. He seems other than the people because he's not attainable. The more important part to the king is safety. If no one's allowed in without being announced, no one can, if the king is secluded, he's safe from attackers. Um, but Esther's sight pleases him, and she's allowed to make her peace. And she says, will you come to dinner with me and invite Haman? Which is going to get good. Now, verse 9 says, Haman went out that day joyful and with a glad heart. I'm going to stop there for a second. Because the queen and King Xerxes have invited Haman to dinner. His attitude is what did I do right? I must, be, I must be earning my paycheck today. Because to be invited by the queen, that doesn't happen. And to be in the presence of the king, all right. But <laughs> when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and that he did not stand or trouble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. So on his way, he feels really good. Feels like everything's going right for him. He's about to spend time with the king and the queen. He's invited to a banquet. Like, this is his professional goals being met. It's euphoria for him. And then he sees Mordecai, and he's upset because Mordecai refuses to bow to him and to give him the respect he deserves. And in his mind, he's thinking, I have so much respect to deserve for me. The queen and the king invited me to a banquet. How dare you not bow to me? And now he's upset with Mordecai. And he has a desire to get rid of him. And he talks... Haman talks to his wife, and he gets advice from her how to deal with Mordecai. So his wife, in verse 14, Zeresh, uh, and all his friends said to, said to Haman, let a gallows be made 50 cubits high or 75 feet high. And in the morning, suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it. Then go merrily with the king to the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. So he had a 75-foot structure to hang or impale Mordecai on because of his anger towards Mordecai. He doesn't want to wait for all the Jews to be killed. He wants to kill Mordecai separately because he's so upset with him. Um, and he gets this advice from his wife, 
And now he's happy, and he can go to sleep peacefully, thinking how he's going to kill Mordecai. But, chapter 6, that night, the king couldn't sleep. All right, insomnia? Could I think of anything more just ordinary for God's providence to work through? Because the story is not over. Haman wants to kill Mordecai and all the Jews. But this night, the king can't sleep. So, one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. So the king decided, I can't sleep. So here's how I'm going to fix that. I'm going to have legal documents read to me. That should knock me out. Uh, but something interesting happens. It was found written that Mordecai had told of Bichthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers, who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus, the people who wanted to kill Xerxes. Then the king said, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said nothing has been done for him. So because he couldn't sleep and his, de his desire to sleep was so strong, he had legal records read before him to try to fall asleep, that the legal record they happened to come across to read before the king was the story about how Mordecai saved his life. And he says, has Mordecai been rewarded yet? What happened? And his servant said, he hasn't been given anything. There's no reward to Mordecai. So Haman wakes up the next day and goes to the king, excited to tell him how he wants to kill Mordecai. Verse 6, Haman came in and the king asked him, what shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? So the first thing King Xerxes, because this is on his mind, it's what kept him up all night, is how do I honor the guy who saved my life? But that's not how Haman hears it. He hears the words that the king says, the man whom the king delights to honor. Now, Haman was just invited to a banquet with Vashti and Xerxes, so she, he thinks, the king's talking about me. He wants to give me stuff. What a good day for Haman. Now, Haman thought in his heart, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman answered the king, he said, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought, which the king has worn, and a horse which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed on its head. Then let this robe and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. Then parade him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, Thus shall it be done for the man whom the king delights to honor. So you get to see Haman's personality and how prideful he is. This is what I want you to do for me. Give me a king's robe, a king's horse with the king's crest, and parade me through the city. <laughs> uh, then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robe and the horse, as you have suggested, and do this for Mordecai, <laughs> the Jew who sits within the king's date. Leave, uh, gate, leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. You know, all the wind comes out of Haman's sails. He was so excited to kill Mordecai, and now instead he has to give Mordecai everything he wanted for himself. So we pick up in, in uh, chapter 7, and we're... So you've seen the tension. Now we get to the conclusion and the resolution to the problem. Haman wants to kill the Jews. Now the king knows one of the Jews saved his life. 
he doesn't know yet that one of the Jews is his wife. So the, the king and Haman went to dinner with Queen Esther. Verse 2, chapter 7. And on the second day, at the banquet of wine, the king again said to Esther, What is your position, or what is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you, and what is your request? Up to half of the kingdom, it shall be done. Basically, he says, anything you want is yours. And Queen, Queen Esther answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, if it pleases the king, let my life be given at my petition and my people at my request. For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. We had been sold as male and female slaves. I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. So he says, whatever you want, you can have. And she says, how about you save my life and my people's lives? Because we've been, we are, there's been an order put out to kill us all. And so Xerxes, King Ahasuerus, answered and said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? Now the king's mad. Who would dare go after my queen that I chose? I took a year to choose. And her people. Who would dare do such a thing to me? And Esther said, Remember, Haman's there. The adversary and the enemy is this wicked Haman. So Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Then the king arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stood before Queen Esther, pleading for his life, for he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. So, <laughs> pretty strange set of events just go down. Haman has gone has risen to the heights of career in Persia. He's the right-hand man of the king. He wants to kill the Jews. His major enemy is Mordecai. He comes up with a plan to get rid of him before he kills all of the Jews. And then the next morning, because the king couldn't sleep and legal records were written, read before him, all of a sudden now Haman has to honor Mordecai with the same honor Haman desired for himself. And now he's been outed in front of the king and the queen about his desire to kill the Jews in all of Persia. And now the king is mad and he's left. And it's just Esther and Haman, and he's begging for his life. What happens? Well, verse 10 tells us, they hanged Haman on the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's wrath subsided. This is really the biblical principle of you reap what you sow. Haman sowed evil and hate, and he sought to kill all of the Jews, and what he reaped in response was what he wanted to do to them, he got for himself. Uh, now, this is spiritual warfare in all of human history is summed up in this book. If God had chosen Abraham for one of his descendants to be a Messiah, and then out of Abraham chooses Jacob, and one of his descendants, and out of Jacob chooses Judah, and out of Judah chooses David, and out of David chooses Jesus, right? If the Messiah's line to come and reconcile man to God is through the Jews, then if you were Satan 
the best thing you could do is destroy the people and the line through which the Messiah comes because then God's plan can't come to fruition. And so we've seen it time and time again, people who have tried to get rid of the Jews. Started with the Amalekites, and now another Amalekite is trying to get rid of the Jews with King Haman. And we've seen it in modern history with Hitler. So, that's, uh, that's where we're at right now. This is the, the setting, the tension, and now we're in the resolution. Haman has been hanged for his crimes, but there's still a big problem. The big problem is the edict that Haman signed with the king's ring is still out there. There's still a day for the Jews to be killed and uh, that law cannot be retracted by the king. So let's see what he does. Let's pick up in, uh, in verse 20 of, of chapter 9. It said, Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters to all the Jews near and far who were in all the provinces of King Hajuharis uh, to establish among them that they should celebrate yearly the 14th and 15th days in the month of Adar as the days on which the Jews had rest from their enemies, as the month which was turned from sorrow to joy for them, from the morning to a holiday, that they should make days of feasting and joy and of sending presents to one another and gifts to the poor. Well, what happened? The king might not have been able to reverse the law that he created, but what he did allow was for the Jews to defend themselves. And they were given advance notice and they were able to defend themselves. And what also happened was because of the news and what had gone on and everything, everybody hearing about Queen, Vashti, or, uh, Queen Esther and Mordecai and the Jews being able to defend themselves, is people also started to convert to Judaism. Uh, and there were more to protect themselves, and so they ended up not being killed. Um, and this day is celebrated. It's called the Feast of Purim. And the book of Esther is read every year at the Feast of Purim. And while it's not a Levitical feast, because it wasn't put in order by Moses, it is a biblical feast in that it's based on the book of Esther. So verse 26 says, So they called these days Purim, after the name Pur. Therefore, because of all the words of this letter, what they had seen concerning this matter, and what had happened to them. And so now... We finish the book in the last verse, chapter 10, verse 3. says, For Mordecai the Jew was second to King Ahasuerus, and was great among the Jews, and well received by the multitude of his brethren, seeking the good of his people, and speaking peace to all his countrymen. So the two people who were faithful through this whole book, Esther becomes queen, and Mordecai takes Haman's place as the right-hand man of the king. And so those people who did not return to Jerusalem and to Judah, who were still in the different provinces of Persia, who were still part of the Israelite tribes, were now protected, and the two most faithful of them were in the highest offices of the land because of God's providence through Esther. Uh, and, and little things like the king not being able to sleep one night, and God took care of his people. And a problem that started because Saul didn't do what God asked him to do. And God solves the problem 600 years later without needing a pillar of fire, just a sleepless night. Let's pray.
Father God, thank you. Thank you for this book. Thank you for giving us an understanding of how you work, that you see the end from the beginning. You know what's best for us far before we know what's best for us. And though sometimes it seems confusing, you know the best way. And if we follow you and if we're faithful, you take care of us and you get us through. God, help us to lean on you and to rely on you, on your authority and your providence. And help us to share the good news of your goodness to the world. In Jesus' name, amen.